Hey, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Leadership Now with me, Dan Pontifrac, in the house, Sarah Wells. Sarah, how are you, Sarah? First of all, you're an Olympian. You're a Pan Am silver medalist. You're the founder of the Believe Initiative. As a 400-meter hurdler, I should say, Sarah, uh, the Olympian's reputation was forged through overcoming challenges and achieving the incredible. You can take her debut at the London Olympics 20 and 12, which came despite the fact that she had an injury that sidelined her for months just the year before. We're going to get into that. Sarah knows the mindset, grit, and amount of failure that it takes to achieve the highest level. She's worked with organizations such as Salesforce, Deloitte, Procter & Gamble, Kraft Heinz, Bell Media, and Google to help build what? Resilient and inspirational leader, Sarah. So good to see you again. It's been a while. I know it's been like a pandemic it in has. five. Yeah, it has. Yeah. Listen, I want a question for you. You're like an individual that has taken sort of life's pains as you were working as an athlete, operating as an athlete to get on those podiums. And, you know, you came up against some, uh, dare I say, hurdles and uh, yeah. ways in which to, to overcome. So first, I want to say this. So what what is resilience to you just as a human being? Can you define it for, for those that need sort of a definition of your Sarah Wells definition of uh, resilience? So my definition of resilience is really about finding significance in the obstacles you face and then taking those lessons and applying them to your next opportunity. And so with that, it, it doesn't necessarily require you to rebound to your previous state. It doesn't require you to sometimes resilience doesn't have to happen quickly. You know, there's definition out there of like, it allows you to bounce back quickly. Sometimes yeah. resilience doesn't happen quickly. <laughs> um, and that's okay. But it's really about being brave enough and, and kind of taking the time to find significance in those obstacles and challenges we face, and then taking those lessons, uncovering them and applying them to that next opportunity. And I've seen that time and time again in sport. And then, you know, now in my business. Okay. So, and I love that by the way. And I think that's where often I think people have messed up and, and almost, um, you know, sabotage their attempts at coming back from something because they indeed think that they have to become what they were at a very quick kind of pace. Mm -hmm. And that's maybe where, if you take the metaphor a little further, being an athlete, you can re-injure yourself or injure yourself indeed. So tell me a bit, of, let's, let's spend some time on that point. So from a resilience perspective, is it time delimited for you to get back to whatever it is? Or do you think it's circumstantial? I believe that it is circumstantial. Um, I think about, so my experience in sport, there was a time, you know, the classic Olympic story where I had a stress fracture in my femur. I make this epic comeback. I shouldn't have ever made it. But then I blow my own mind six months later, make the Olympic Games. And four years later, when the Olympus comes back around, I'm now Sarah Wells, the Olympian. Right. And I'm expected to win a medal because I was at that time top ranked in the world. And I'd just come off winning a Pan Am Games silver medal. And so I go to like make this dream come true. And two months before the Rio Olympic trials, I have a workout on a day I should have never worked out <laughs> because my hamstrings were super tight, but I choose to ignore that. And I work out anyways. And I end up actually ripping an inch tear in my hamstring oh i know not pretty it, it, it made a gunshot noise when it exploded <laughs> it was sickening yeah but when i try to do everything i can to let those muscle fibers heal over the course of eight weeks and because i had had everything work out the first olympic quad that i tried to go for the olympics for so four years prior i believed in myself i overcame the obstacles and i made it to the olympic games 
So now when I'm in this position, I've just torn my hamstring four years later now. I'm like, okay, well, if I just believe in myself, if I decide to focus on the things in my control, then like it should all work out. It did last time. It'll work out for me again. And I did everything I could. And I still stood on that Olympic start line uh, of the Olympic trials start line, I should say. And I went for it anyways. And as a four time national champion, I was like, okay, I have some wiggle room because they usually take top three as the people they take to the Olympics. And so I was like, okay, as a four time champion, I have some room here. And I ended up missing qualifying by 0.38 of a second. And I get fourth. And I was devastated, devastated. Because for four years, I had been known as Sarah Wells, the Olympian. And now Sarah Wells, the Olympian doesn't make the Olympics. And so I share the story often where I leave the track that day after this, you know, life shattering moment where I felt like my friends wouldn't respect me anymore. And I would never get invited to do a speaking engagement ever again because I didn't make the Olympics. And I pull into the driveway of the Airbnb we were staying at and I couldn't go into the house. And I just opened the car door and fall onto the driveway and laid in fetal position and just cry and cry. And in that moment, I quit sport. Wow. And this speaks to your point if, if it's circumstantial, because in that moment, I was like, I quit sport forever. I, I refuse to go back to the track. It's so hard. It's so painful. It hurt me. I gave it everything and it broke me. And so in that moment, I was quitting sport forever. I was like, I will never bounce back. I will never be able to get over this. Like there's absolutely no way. And it took me a long time. In the end, I only quit sport for a year and I went back and, you know, won the national championships again one more time. And um, I needed that time though, to be committed to the fact that that was it. That was the finish. That was the end for me. And I needed the time and space in order to recognize the things I had actually gained from that experience, even though I didn't get the outcome I desired, the things I had actually learned, the people I got to meet along the way, all the things that I actually gained through that process that allowed me to then get back up, be resilient one year later. Hmm. And now there's smaller things in life where, you know, you can, you think about, you go back to like when you're five years old, you throw your hands up and you're like, mom, I hate you. Mom, I hate you. Like, you're the worst thing. I'm never going to love you. And then like two hours later, she feeds you an apple and you're like, I love my mom. You know, like it's not exactly parallel, but there's things where it's like, we feel like it's the worst thing of all time. And it's, it's fairly easy to rebound back. And then there's other things in a different circumstance where it can be more challenging. It can take more time and that's okay. So do you think then, Sarah, that given you've experienced the highest of highs, success, that you've arguably had some very dark moments as well in a failure. And then obviously between the two are obstacles to overcome. Where's the Mm -hmm. learning or is that a setup for you to say like, actually there's learning everywhere when one is resilient and, and applying some of the points that you've just said. Yeah, I believe that there is learning everywhere. We don't always notice it in the moment. Uh, Mm -hmm. And so it does kind of take a, art of looking for that upon a dark moment where you feel like you can't get up, that there's no point in moving forward. And and sometimes that might be your sign to say, okay, let go of the goal, let go of the pursuit that you're on. And that's, that's totally okay. But if it is still something that you desire, if it is still something you want to push for and fight for, then we need to start looking to what I call like in, in those moments, how we actually exercise resilience (laughs) when we 
have, we feel like there's no possible way as we use this method that I call the three C's. Okay. And so in those moments where you have to force yourself to look for it, like it's just so, but you still want that thing. You focus on the three C's, which is one, to actually uh, remind yourself that you have a choice because when obstacles arise and things come up in our way, you know, something unforeseen, we can feel like our hands are tied and that we don't, there's nothing we can do and it's happening to us. And we need to remember that we always have a choice in the mindset we adopt when facing our next challenge. And so that's about looking for, okay, this thing didn't go right, but how do I actually focus on the things that are in my control? Reminding myself, I have a choice. The second thing is consistency. Because I can't tell you that on my pursuit to the Olympic Games every time that I was like, yay, can't wait to run till I throw up today. <laughs> like, love this. I know I just lost the last race and I have no signs telling me I'm going the right direction, but right. you know what? Let's do this. Like, I wasn't that person every day. Right. But instead, when obstacles arise, when things don't go our way, when something unforeseen happens, we need to remind ourselves to focus on consistency to exercise that resilience until we kind of find that momentum again, because we shouldn't be measuring ourselves based on like the degree or like how large of a step we took forward that day, because sometimes that can be very deflating because sometimes the road is really long or sometimes it can feel like, oh my God, like, why am I even doing this? Other people are further ahead and we get into the world of comparison. And so instead of doing some of that and looking at yourself based on how long you have to go or how much better other people are doing, when we need to exercise resilience, when we don't feel like we can, we just need to be measuring ourselves on showing up for the goal. And mm. sometimes that consistency in showing up for the goal can look like, you know, in my case of sport, literally just showing up at the track and going through the motions of a workout on another day where maybe I have a bit more enthusiasm around the goal. I had a better sleep. I was fueled better. There's something else that went on in my life that brought that extra energy to my life. You know, I show up and I crush the workout. And as long as I'm consistently doing that, I'm chipping away and I'm getting closer and closer. And eventually the more momentum I create, the more mo motivation I might have, the more likely that when obstacles come in the way, I'm likely to be resilient and keep going because I see it. There's hope, there's potential there. So the first one was choice. Remembering you have a adopt the mindset that uh, you always have a choice when you're in the mindset you adopt when going forward. Yep. Second is consistency. And then the third and final thing is to catalog. Now, I make fun of myself for this because I feel like when I tell people, originally I used to use the word journal, but there's a lot of, lots of things being labeled as journaling. And so I'm scared that people are like, go home and write, dear diary, today was so great. And you know, it's not, I'm not asking anyone to do that. I know that no one will listen to me, but when we need to find resilience, if we can catalog our progress and our wins, that it can actually help us find significance in the obstacles we face when we get to that crossroads. So you're proactively helping yourself <laughs> and actually showing yourself, okay, well, right now when an obstacle comes along, something goes awry, I feel like there's no point in moving forward. And I can feel like I'm like, no, you got this, keep going. And that feels like I'm just trying to make myself feel better. You know, like, right. why would I get back up? Why would I follow the path again? And instead of just feeling like you're trying to make yourself feel better, you can go back to this catalog of wins that you've had or progress steps. And you can say, okay, you know, in my case, I'll parallel this to sport on a day where I'd had a bad workout. 
And it can feel like, oh my God, like I'm actually so crappy. Like I'm never going to make the Olympic games. Like everyone else is so much better than me. You know what? This actually hasn't been a bad week. It's been a bad month. Actually the whole year has been terrible. Like what am I doing? And so we spiral all the way down and we can probably be more likely to pick ourselves up, be resilient when we can say, okay, sure. Today was today a bad day. Yeah. Today wasn't my best day, but has it been a bad week? No. Has it been a bad month? No. Look how much progress I've made towards that goal. I'm in momentum. If I can fight through this, if I can get back up right now, think of how far I could be in a month from now and a month from that. And so then we slowly put a tailwind behind us that gets us back into motion. And so those three things I've given you, you know, went on and on here, but in the remembering that you have a choice, consistency and catalog are the ways that I think we can exercise resilience, even when we don't feel like it. Gosh, I love that. Uh, those three C's are, are fantastic, Sarah. Now, um, it says a lot, obviously, right, from the need to have oxytocin in your life and, and not to have any of the stress hormones. So yeah. let me let me That's ask nice. you. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, let me ask you a question then that kind of relates to this and what you would do. So as you're working with leaders in corporations, organizations, adults um, mm. that are leaders or otherwise, pressure is everywhere. So the pressure may be budget constraints or pandemic, Sarah, or, mm -hmm. you know, kids in the hospital or bosses that are egregiously ugly and the demeanor in which that they treat their, their people. So yeah. what do we do about the pressure as you've experienced pressure as an athlete, but how, what do we do about the pressure that's in the organization when we don't want cortisol, we want oxytocin, we want the love drug. What do we do to help us find our way from a resilience perspective? So in my case, you know, there's, there's the performance curve and we know we want to be in the optimal state at the top of that curve where it's not too stressful. It's not like a walk in the park where we're not necessarily motivated because it's not that challenging for us. And so it's different, but I would say that all of us need the coping and, and tendencies or tactics that we would use that bring us back into that optimal state of anxiety or stress, because mm. we know burnout's happening and through the pandemic, right. People were able to work endlessly. And so when we recognize that behavior or we see our, you know, our bosses on us and we're like, oh my God, like if I, he, now he wants me to do this. Now I need to jump to this task. Oh, now I need to go over here. Or I have the book, this meeting. Oh my gosh, but my kids need to be picked up from school. Oh my gosh, but I haven't eaten yet today. Like all of those things we need to recognize when that's happening and be able to have a, a set of skills and tactics that we know can bring us back into that zone. Now it's not always completely that that simple like oh we'll just find five minutes and do right. your breath work <laughs> it's like yeah sure show me where i'm getting that five minutes sarah um <laughs> but similarly my coach would say in those moments when we do start feeling that stress that anxiety and in my case it would come on big races mm -hmm. and i think it would be remembering what's important and for for my coach and i it was that like okay we start dealing with this pressure and stress if it's a big meet it's a big challenge it, there's this girl in the race that's number two in the world. And I could start getting over the performance optimal curve and being like, ah, I have to do everything better. And you know what? I probably have to have the race of my life. I probably have to do everything differently. I probably have to like show up as a, the incredible Hulk today. And why, why would I have to do that? Like remembering what's important, which is to execute the race plan that we have worked on that we know will produce a certain result and being okay with doing that and looking for maybe my 0.1% of improvement. And so for someone who's like, okay, I'm, I'm dealing with all this pressure and this stress, reminding yourself that sometimes we just have to be aware of our own boundaries and be like, that's a lot. 
I'm going to put it all down in a list so it's out of my brain. And I'm going to tackle that list like as fast as I can. But I need to recognize that I don't need to suddenly turn into the Incredible Hulk and tackle that whole list today because you've been successful to this point. You've managed stress. You know, use some of your tactics, find five minutes if you can or way to recharge the night that night so that the next morning you can come back and tackle that big list. But we need to use the things that are in our toolkit, like meditation, like going for a walk, looking at green space, finding something that's more than 20 centimeters away, which is your computer screen, <laughs> and looking somewhere a little bit like longer. Um, and when we can do that and say, okay, I have these tactics and I don't need to stretch myself to a place I've never gone before. That's not the only way to success. And I think that will help us remove some of the pressure. Um, and this is kind of like a rogue adjacent story. But <laughs> what I'll speak to this on is that remembering what's important in terms of managing pressure. Sometimes we put pressure on ourselves that is coming from no one else but ourselves. You know, like we assume that, oh my gosh, everyone's expecting this of me. Or like the only way to do this is down this path. And I have to do it that way. Or everyone will say, I've tried to take the easy road or who knows what. And my partner, he worked for Uber uh, at the early stages when it first came to Canada. And he told me this hilarious story about when they were, Rides was trying to get people to feel comfortable getting into an Uber. Yeah. And that was at that time, obviously not as people were like, you want me to get into a stranger's car? Like, right. what? That's, that sounds absurd. And so they, all they wanted to do, the marketing team said, we just want them to be able to push a button and get a ride. And they're like, what if we built this like amazing booth downtown Toronto right at rush hour? And as people walk by, we tell them, if you push a butt, a car, car will show up, you can get in, it'll take you home. And they were like, okay, but then that needs to be linked to the Uber software. And are we going to need Wi-Fi connection? And what if it drops? And like, we need power to that source. So like, where are we going to get the world's longest extension cord? And they created all these reasons why there was all this pressure and stress of like why it wasn't possible. And they ended up kind of saying, okay, maybe we shouldn't do it until someone remembered what was important, which was that they needed to push a button, get a ride. That's the only experience the user needed to have. Right. And so they actually threw out the whole, like the button actually being linked to the system, everything having to tie in together. And they had the big, beautiful booth, but when someone would push a button, it was just the marketing person around the corner in a bush going order <laughs> Uber. <laughs> and Sometimes if we can simply remember what's important like that, we can remove some of the weight and pressure that we put on ourselves. And that's kind of where I was saying about in sport, I didn't have to go above and beyond who I was in order to have a great race and run my best race next to the second ranked girl in the world. I just simply had to remember what was important, which was executing the race. And in Uber's case, push a button, get a ride. <laughs> I love it. Okay. So I got two questions left for you. Um, one has to do, and it's two parts. So I guess maybe it's three questions, but um, <laughs> so tell me a bit then about two factors that happen both, I would argue, you know, uh, on the track as well as in, in, in organizations with leaders. And that is, well, I'll call it keeping up with the Joneses and imposter syndrome. So where I'm going with this question is Sarah, What's it like then for leaders or just human beings when when we're looking to be resilient in the face of adversity and pressure, et cetera, but then there's an added layer at times for some people, which is, oh my gosh, I have to keep up with Sarah. She just she's got sixty speaking gigs this month. Oh my god, I've only got <laughs> I've only got four. 
And then there's yeah. the then there's the other. Oh, no one's ever going to hire me, or I'm an imposter. I'm why am I in this role? So I, you know, I better dig deeper. And then this creates, as I mentioned before, like some of the the stress hormones. So tell us a bit about those two avenues and your thoughts on that. Yeah, it, it, this is actually something that in in sport where your physiology plays a big role in how successful you feel you can be. Um, there's two things. And I just forgot the second thing that I wanted to mention here. Um, oh yes. Okay. I remember. Just want to make sure I got both my bullet points here. Uh, <laughs> I'm like, let me, uh, two things popped up in my brain. So the first one is when I think of that and I hear that question, it makes me think about how people can get into that imposter syndrome and think like, well, if they do this and they're respected for that, or they have this kind of role and people seem to admire that, or they have this thing and X, Y, Z, then we feel like we need to be like that person or that if we aren't like that, that we'll never get to the point of success that they've hmm. been at. And there's a Harvard Business Review article that interviewed um, 1,700 CEOs and, and one of the results that came out of them asking the question, what do you need to see in your top performing leaders? One of the things was they need to have the ability to inspire others. And of course we said, okay, great. So they need to be inspiring. How are we doing that? <laughs> like, how right. do people become inspiring then? And so Bain took that and said, okay, let's go research. What are things that make people inspirational? And they found 33 distinguished inspirational character traits. Mm. And the most important takeaway for me in reading this research was that if you had even just one of these inspirational leadership traits, you had two times more likely chance of being deemed inspirational by your colleagues. Wow. If you had four of them, four of them, you were had a 90% chance of being deemed as inspirational by your colleagues. But the best part was that no one character trait based off of like thousands of inputs was more inspiring than another. And uh. so what you find inspirational is different than what I find inspirational. And why people find you inspiring is different than why people find me inspiring. And that can be true for every single person across this planet. And so why I think that's so important is sometimes we can get this imposter syndrome about, hey, well, I need to be like them because they made it to success or people like them for that. But if we look at this research, no one thing was deemed more important or more inspirational because there's variance across every single person. Yeah. And so what we need to remember is about whether it's what makes us inspirational or what our strengths are or what we feel is really easy compared to what we feel is really hard. That variance exists across every single character trait. And so we need to lean into our distinguished strengths that enable us to be the inspirational person, to enable us to be the most valuable player in certain scenarios and recognize that our time and our scenario will come. And my paralleled sport example for this, the second bullet point I had in my head that I was like, wait, I don't remember this, is about in the 400 meter hurdles, I'll get technical here on everyone. It's one big lap around the track and there's 10 hurdles. Now, because at the beginning of a 400 meter hurdle race, you are less tired and your muscles are more elastic you can take a certain number of strides between the hurdles because it's different than the sprint hurdles where all the hurdles go bang, 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 like one after the other. And the 400 hurdles, they're spread out 35 meters apart. So at the beginning of a 400 hurdle race, your muscles are more elastic. You can take less strides because your, your stride length is longer. Got it. So in my case, um, I would usually take 
16 strides for the first half of the race. Okay. And then I would, I would take 17 strides in the last half of the race. Hmm. Now, world-class hurdlers, if you look at everyone at the Olympic finalists, like the last like two year, two Olympic quads, you would notice that 90% of them, if not 95% of them, take 15 strides for the first half of the race oh. and 16 strides for the last half. So I am taking 10 more strides than every single Olympic uh, other like 400 meter runner on the start line that day. But when I tried to lengthen my stride so that I could try to take 15 instead of 16 strides, I was almost breaking because my foot was going way out in front of me. And so I was causing daddy long legs style, you know, and it was creating all of this breaking sensation. So I was actually running slower while reducing my number of strides. And so my coach and I, we just said, you know what? Screw it. Everyone else takes 15 strides. Let them. You take 16 strides. That's what your optimal race plan includes a 16 stride pattern. And I ran 16 strides and blew my personal best out of the water, you know, like, and reminding myself that like, just because it worked for someone else doesn't mean it's going to work for you and removing that imposter syndrome. Because sometimes your distinguished strength is the thing you think you need to change. Well, you, you squash both keeping up with the Joneses and the imposter syndrome with an extra <laughs> stride. I mean, this is fantastic. Way to go, Wellesley. Okay. All right. Last question. And so you write and you speak and you work with organizations a lot on what you call redefining success. And so mm -hmm. you've kind of come up with this point where it's really equally important, right, to create those mechanisms that keep you know, us as individuals motivated and inspired ultimately. So can you just end with us on how you uh, urge people to redefine success for them and what it means? Yeah. And that's coupled a little bit with what I've just described about the inspirational leadership and leaning into your distinguished strengths. Like Got it. to me, that is the foundation to redefining success is recognizing your distinguished strengths and learning how to implement those into your daily practice of your job because that's what's going to allow you to have your greatest impact. And so we need to first understand what are our distinguished strengths, how we can build that into our daily work lives. And we also need to learn how to share that story um, is, the, is kind of the third part. And I won't dive deep into that. But basically, in order to build that inspirational leadership brand, when you know what that is, execute it daily and then share that story. And that's what my entire leadership, inspirational leadership program dives into. Um, but the redefined success and why I feel so strongly about that message is that once we recognize what makes us inspirational, well, then now we need to start removing the labels and the titles that we were told were important. So in my case, win an Olympic medal. That's how you're valued, Sarah. That's how people are going to like you. That's what's going to make you like your dollars and your future contracts are going to come from that. And what happened was I kind of very briefly touched on these two scenarios where I had an injury. I overcame it. I made the Olympics at the London Olympics and it was amazing. And I started getting on stages and sharing that story of like, be resilient, get back up, achieve your goals. It happened to me and I made the Olympics. So you try it. And then four years later, uh, you know, in a different scenario, of course, but yeah, yeah. <laughs> four years later, I end up working out on the day I shouldn't have. I tear my hamstring and Sarah Wells, the Olympian doesn't make the Olympics. And I was devastated and I thought that I had failed because I did not make the Olympics the second time. And as I got opportunities to stand on the stage and share both sides, 
far more people came up to me after the fact and said they were more inspired by the time where I didn't make the Olympics over the time where I did. And I think that's because we can all remember our lay in the driveway and fetal position and cry moment where I talked about when I quit sport and not everyone's is going to look like that, but we can remember a time where we felt like a failure. We thought our friends weren't going to like us anymore. And it's in those moments that I really encourage people to remind themselves that hard work, unfortunately, doesn't always lead to success, but being resilient will always lead to another opportunity for success. And so in that case, we can redefine success from okay, well, if I get the outcome, I'm successful. And instead, reinforce action over outcome. Because when we choose to stand on our version of a start line, whatever that is for us or you or whoever out there, and go for it anyways, we will encounter obstacles. We will learn things about ourselves. We will meet people along the way. And that's where we started, where you can take those lessons, pick them up if you choose to look for them and apply it to the next opportunity. And so that hard work won't always lead to success, but being resilient will always lead to another opportunity for it is really the punchline on how we redefine success and focus on action over outcome. Wonderful stuff, Sarah. Uh, you definitely are going to consistently be my choice to catalog how to do resilience <laughs> going forward. Where can we find out more information about Sarah Wells, please? Uh, you can go to www.sarahwells.ca. It's not .com. You'll find a very different product. Uh, so, and Sarah is with an H. So S-A-R-A-H-W-E-L-L-S dot C-A. And you can find all things there. And uh, yeah, thanks so much for having me on, Dan. I really appreciate it. Sarah, it's always time Wells spent uh, with you. Thank you so much. <laughs> Did uh, you plan that? No, I'm just, I'm extemporaneous, my friend. <laughs> you can steal it. You get yours. It's my gift to you for being on the show. Sarah, it's so great to see Thank you. It's so you. great to hear from you and can't wait for what's next for you in the future. Everyone, Sarah Wells, sarahwells.ca is where she's at. You've watched and listened to another episode of Leadership Now with me, Dan Pontefract.